Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. invite you to stand as we begin today. There is joy in the house of the Lord. And we saw that scripture on the screen that said, come, let us shout to the Lord for joy. Let's worship him. the God whoevermore will be. He opened the prison doors. He parted the raging sea. My God, He holds the victory. There's joy in the house of the Lord. There's joy in the house of the Lord today. And we won't be quiet. We shout out Shout out your praise, there's joy in the house of the Lord. 
have a seat. So great to see all of you here today. And uh, thank you for singing that with us here this morning and for being here in person and online today. We're so grateful to be worshiping with you. Um, When you came in this morning, you you had a bulletin that was given to you. Inside that bulletin is a green connection card. I'm going to invite all of you to take that out. I'm going to ask our host to go ahead and put that online connect card there in the chat window. But um, we ask each uh, each and every week that you guys fill out the card and... um, and just uh, on the back of that card are some places there. If you have any questions, you want to give us a prayer request, we love being able to partner with you and to pray along with you about anything in your life that's going on. And uh, if this is your first time here with us today, a special thank you for being here. And a real simple, easy way to be able to connect uh, is actually by texting. So you can take out your phone this morning and text the word hello to 717-872-5679. And of course, you can do that at home or wherever you're viewing online today or later this week. But we'd love to reach out and say thank you for being a part of our service and uh, and worshiping with us here today. And uh, we're always so grateful to be able to do that. Also, in Inside of your bulletin are some things, some special events that we have coming up. Of course, Easter is in a couple of weeks, and so we're excited about that and planning uh, a great service for you guys as we celebrate um, Jesus' resurrection and that great day, uh, which is what we do every week, actually, right? We, we celebrate the risen Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, and so we're so glad uh, we have that opportunity to do that here today as well. Um, As we continue our sermon series, we've been talking about how to have a faith that works, and uh, it's been a great series. We're kind of coming to the end of that, Uh, and today we're going to have a great another installment of, you know, how our faith, uh, how we can put that to practical, in practical ways. And so um, today we're going to talk about, uh, well, first, let me ask you this. So I'm from down south. You might not can tell, right, by my, my accent. But, uh, so, but uh, we love to drink coffee. Actually, my parents, we have coffee morning, noon, and night, literally. So people come over in the afternoon and you have coffee. It's like, I'm going to be up all night. But it's just what you do. So my question here is for you this morning. How do you like your coffee? And I'm going to ask you to ask the person next to you how they like their coffee. So do you like your coffee hot, lukewarm, or cold. So go ahead and take a few seconds there, a few minutes maybe, and uh, talk about that. How do you like your coffee? Hot, lukewarm, or cold? And then we'll come back. All right. Thank you for sharing this morning. So yeah, I I like my coffee hot. I'm not, I, can't, I haven't quite jumped on the bandwagon of cold coffee. So, uh, but yeah, maybe it's my age. I'm not sure. But yeah, uh, but nobody likes anything lukewarm, right? Nobody likes lukewarm coffee. Um, so, but yeah, God's going to talk about that today in the scripture that we have. It's just part of this, but we want to be all in. We don't want to be cold, and of course, I'm sure he would prefer us to be hot, but never lukewarm, right? Uh, and so we're going to talk about that today, that God wants us to be all in and not to compartmentalize our lives, right? He wants us to walk every day in the Spirit with him. And so we're going to see that scripture and amongst, amongst those many others. And another scripture that we'll see today, it talks about God's fierce love for us. And so we're going to sing about that, that his love is fierce. I'm going to invite you to stand with us. But as we think about being all in today, that his love is fierce and that he can have everything today as we surrender to him. So let's worship.
you answer me from where the thunder hides? I can't outrun this heart I'm tethered to. With every step, I collide with you. Like a tidal wave crashing over me, rushing in to meet me here. Your love is fierce, like a hurricane that I can't escape, tearing through the atmosphere. Your love is fierce. You cannot fail. The only thing I found. Never let me down. You don't hold back, relentless in pursuit. At every turn, I come face to face with you. Like a tidal wave, crashing over me, rushing in. of that fierce love that we don't have to be afraid this morning to lay those things down, the burdens, the things that would stand in the way of that daily relationship that we just talked about a while ago, of being able to be all in and walk in the Spirit daily. So let's use this next song as a prayer of surrender to Him today because it says that He can have it all.
this heart that is now yours. Sing that with me. You can have it all. You can have it all, Every part of my world. Take this life and breathe on. This heart that is now
make that our prayer today. Jesus, God, as we take these next few moments, God, as we just uh, quiet our hearts before you, Lord, uh, would you search our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you show us maybe the areas this week where we have um, not been walking with you Would you convict our hearts today to see maybe where we uh, said an unkind word um, or that we chose our way instead of walking in the way of truth? Um, Lord, uh, over these last couple of weeks, as we've talked about how to live a spirit-filled life, how to be all in, how to have a faith that truly works, Father. I pray that you would show us maybe where we're straddling the fence, where we're um, maybe putting on a mask. Help us to be real with you today, Father. Help us to be genuine. We're reminded today of your fierce love for us, that your word says that you are jealous for our souls and that you want that relationship with you to be restored if it's broken or, Lord, to be bolstered if it's failing and faltering. We thank you for your outrageous love and your generous spirit, Father. And so today, as we hear your words, would you stir our hearts as we listen? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Along with Scott and the worship team, I just want to say good morning. And let me begin with, I think, a question that I already know the answer to, but I want to invite you into the process, into the thought. Here's the question. You don't have to answer out loud. You're certainly free to share with one another. In fact, when Scott asked you how you like your coffee, I think some of you sound a little bit over-caffeinated. You just kept going. That was great. It was great to see that kind of energy in the room. But here's the question I want to begin with this morning. If I ask you, what is today causing conflicts, quarrels, divisions, and fights in our society, what would you say? How would you answer that question? What, in your opinion, is causing fights, quarrels, divisions, animosity in our culture? Here's what I think you would say. I think most of us would come there. I think most of us would give answers like this. We'd say it's politics, it's race, it's gender, it's the economy, it's gas prices, it's all things pandemic, right? Masks and mandates and vaccines. We would just say all of those things are causing conflict in our culture today. And I think you're absolutely right. If you went with some of those or all of those, I agree with you. I think those things are causing fights and division. But here's the question I want to ask you. What if, what if in all of that, folks, there's something underlying those issues that is deeper than those issues? In other words, folks, what if there is something that you and I bring to those issues that makes us by, if you will, by nature, almost predisposed to be conflicted? and combative, and even contentious in our lives and in our relationships. Now, the reason I say that is because that's exactly where James is going to go today. He's going to say there's something deeper than just the issues of life that make us, if you will, fight and quarrel and come to places of division. And so what I want to do today is I want to invite you to take out your message notes, if you haven't already, and let's just pick up where we left off last week with James chapter 4, verse 1. 
James chapter 4, verse 1. I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Other translations are similar, but today I really appreciate how the New Living Translation expressed James' thoughts. So here's what he writes. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Now, I don't know a verse that is perhaps more applicable to where we're at today in our culture and in our world than that verse right there. But here's what I want to suggest to you. James, in my opinion, starts off this whole section in a very intriguing way. In fact, two intriguing ways. And the first way he begins, that's intriguing to me at least, is he brings up the question, the issue of what causes fights and quarrels among us. Now, it's intriguing, and the reason I think it's intriguing, because most of us say, well, I already know what causes fights. I already know what causes divisions in my home, at work, on my block. It's someone does something to me, says something, does something that hurts me, offends me, upsets me, and so we kind of go to war. We end up in quarrels. We end up in fights. And yet James, as we're going to see in a second, says, I don't think you really know the answer to that question. I don't think we really truly understand at its core what causes fights and quarrels. And that really leads to what I would say is the second intriguing thing about this introduction. Because James literally poses the question, he asks, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? And then he answers it himself, and he says, here's the answer, folks. It's what's going on inside of us. It's what we bring to the table. It's what's going on in our hearts, in our lives. Specifically, he says, understand that we as individuals often are warring inside ourselves, which leads us to war outside ourselves. In other words, he's saying inner conflict in your life and mine ultimately finally leads to outer conflict, conflict with other people, division with others. That's what James is getting at. That's what he wants us to understand. So the issue that we're looking at today is how in the world do we live a life free of conflict? Because inner conflict ultimately leads to outer conflict. Now, when I speak about that, if you're like me, and I think you are, I think we're all fairly typical, fairly normal, and the normal response when we think about conflict is this. We always feel like we're the victim in the conflict, right? We always feel like, you know what, it's the other person's fault. It's what they said. It's what they did that upset me. And, and the reason we want to think that and we feel that way, you know it and I know it, folks, because then we feel justified in whatever our reaction is, whatever our response is, we feel justified. But James says, hold on a second. Hold on a second. You need to look internally. We need to get honest with ourselves, James says. He says, the reality is, folks, the conflicts that we experience often in our lives with others and even with God is caused by the junk in our own lives. Specifically, he says, it's caused by our own evil internal desires. Now, as soon as James goes there, then if you were here last week, I think your mind goes where mine did, and that is back to what James talked about last week, the issue of envy. Now, don't worry if you're here last week. I'm not going to re-preach last Sunday's message, but I do want to review for you and for those who weren't here last Sunday, because I know, and we've talked about it before, that most people forget, in fact, we all forget, 80% of we are here in 72 hours. So if I quiz you about what I said last week, most of us, including myself quite candidly, probably couldn't tell you. So here's what I want to do. Here real quick. We talked about envy, and I said to you, envy is more than just simply desiring something that someone else has. Because left unchecked, what envy does is it moves, it actually devolves from simply desiring what someone else has to actually disliking the person 
for having it. We resent the fact that they have what they have because in reality, we feel like, you know what, we probably should have had that. That really ought to have gone to us. It really ought to belong to us. That credit really is ours. And so we, we don't just simply, when we have it, just simply dislike the fact that the person has it. We resent them for having it. And then ultimately, we hope that they'll lose it. And James says, if necessary, we're willing to scheme and even go to war to take it from them. In other words, we're willing to do what we have to do to make sure that becomes a reality. That if we can't have it, they won't have it either. And so the point that James is getting at, and what we talked about last week, is that envy seeks to either possess or ultimately destroy not only the thing desired, but often the person who has it. And it's for that reason, James says, that envy, specifically envy, causes conflict in your life and mine. And I think we all agree with that. I think we've all lived that enough times in our own lives to go, you know what, James is absolutely right. That is proven true in my life practically. But James doesn't stop there because he goes on. He keeps writing to these, these, remember, first century Christians, Jewish Christians, and he says, I don't want to tell you about why you fight. Let's talk about why you have envy. What's at the root of this thing? What's the cause of this? And I want you to look at what he writes next. And you have in your outline, I believe, the New International Version. I'm going to read for you this morning from the New Living Translation again. Listen to what he writes. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it. Now notice this, because your motives are all wrong. You only want what, what you cannot have to, in order for your own pleasure. You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God? I'll say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scriptures have no meaning? For they say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. And he gives grace generously. For as the scripture said, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. So let's just net it out. So why do we envy? Well, according to James, we envy because we don't have what we want. And why do we have, do not have what we want? Is it because that the people we envy are smarter than us, more attractive than us, brighter than us, better connected than us, have, have, you know, are just more, just overall better people than we are? James says, no, that's not the case. Sometimes it may be. But for James, he says, no, that's not the issue. He says the issue, the core issue in all of that, for you and for me, James says, is we don't have because we don't ask God. And even if we do ask, God James says, many times we ask with the wrong motives. And did you catch what the motives were? He says the wrong motives are we want only what we want to give ourselves pleasure. In other words, we ask in a self-serving way. We're not asking to, to better the world, to honor God. We're asking because I want what I want because I want it. And we've all been there. And so James' point here, at this point in, the, in his letter, is really saying this. Understand, readers, understand church that the conflict and envy in your life and mine is rooted in seeking to please ourselves rather than to please God. In other words, we're living for self rather than God. And James is going to argue, folks, when you and I do that, and he's already said that, when you and I do that, he says, you come up empty-handed. You come up holding nothing of significance because what you have done in that moment, what I have done in that moment, and we've all done it, is we've traded the substantial, we've traded what is truly worthwhile 
for what is superficial and cheap and temporary. Let me tell you a story that I think will help illustrate that. Tony Campolo, some of you recognize the name, he's a professor at Eastern College for years, grew up in Philadelphia, and he talks in, in one of his books about how as a kid growing up in Philadelphia, that every day, or if you will, the day before Halloween, every year was designated as Mischief Night. Now, I love that, Mischief Night. Now, you can imagine what he and his friends did at that night. So he tells a story about one time, one evening before Halloween, he and his friends decided to break into a five-and-dime store. Now, if you were born after the 70s, here, dollar store, okay? Five-and-dime, dollar store, same thing. Well, what they did is they broke into the store. They didn't take anything. Instead, what they decided to do was change all the price tags. And so what they did is they took something that was very expensive, they made it very cheap, and what was very cheap, they made it very expensive. So he said when they walked in the store the next day, the, the store owners, the manager, the staff found, you know, radios selling for 10 cents and bobby pins selling for $10. Because again, he said, you know, what my friend and I did was we ended up taking that which was valuable and we made it cheap. And what was cheap, we decided to make valuable. Now, again, being a great thinker or theologian that he is, Compolo says, you know, as I was a adult, I began to reflect about that. And he says, you know what? In the world that we're living in today, he said, I feel like that's what someone's done in the world. That somebody has switched the price tags. And as a result, what's happening today, he says, is we live in a world where we're unwilling to invest in the things that really matter. But we pour our lives and ourselves into things unwittingly that absolutely make no difference at all. And he says the bottom line is because of all that, spiritually what we see today is we see today that the material outweighs the spiritual. Again, because someone has switched the price tags and we've fallen for it. We've taken the bait. But folks, as bad as that is and as real as that is, it gets worse, James says, when you and I lump in pride. When we lump in, if you will, ego. And that's why he writes what he does in verse 6. Take a look at it again. It's, it's pulled out there for you on the outline. James writes, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And the reason he writes that, and you understand it, and I understand it, folks, is because pride leads you and me to think that anything God might have to offer us, we don't need him to get it. In other words, what pride ultimately does is says in reality, we don't need God. We're our own God. And that's why James says humility is so important at this very point in your life and mine. Because folks, it's only through humility that we actually see ourselves for who we truly are. And it's only through humility when we see ourselves for who we truly are that we see our desperate and real need for God himself. That we, in fact, cannot be and are not our own gods. And it's at that point, it almost seems like in this letter, as you kind of think through it and read it, it seems to me anyhow, that James almost anticipates his readers saying something like this, like any of us would do. So what do I do about it? How do we handle this? What's our response? And I want you to notice what he writes in anticipating that question. He says, so let God work his will in you. Would you underline that? Let God work his will in you. Yell a loud no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time. Now again, notice this. Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and games are over. Get serious. 
really serious. Get down on your knees before the master, for it's the only way you'll get on your feet. In other words, what James is trying to say to you and to me, and that is such a powerful passage, there's a part of me that just wanted to stop there and say, the service is over. We could just live there, but here's what James is trying to say there, folks. The solution, the solution in your life and my life, the solution to his readers' inner turmoil, their outer conflicts, that inner struggle, that inner war, he says the solution to that is for you and I to turn our backs on the things that keep God at a distance and then to call out to God to be our everything, to make him, if you will, our all and all. Now, again, saying that, I want you to remember, I started there. I want to remind you again, folks, that James is writing to people who are self-professed Christians. He is not writing to unchurched people. He, he is writing to people that see themselves and call themselves followers of Jesus. And yet, in that context, it's apparent that James is saying, yet these same professing Christians seem to be looking to God for some things and looking to the world for others. In other words, they're living a life half with one foot in and one foot out. And James says it has to stop. It has to stop. And he says that out of love, not out of frustration. He says it has to stop because you'll never be free from the inner conflicts or the outer conflicts until you decide to quit living the Christian life with one foot in and one foot out. Until you decide to quit living a divided life. Until you decide to quit serving two masters. And folks, let me be clear to you. The reason James says that, the foundation of James's logic and argument there is Jesus himself. Many, many places Jesus talks about that divided life and that in the uselessness of the divided life. But I want to take you to one place in Luke chapter 14 where Luke records Jesus saying this. He said, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Why? Because it's utterly useless. Now, just think about that for a second, folks. I thought about that a second, and I thought, how would I feel if Jesus looked at me and said, Jerry, the way you're living your life, this kind of half-in and half-out kind of discipleship isn't worth a pile of manure. It really would not add value to a pile of manure. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why it's thrown out. It's useless. It accomplishes nothing, even in a manure pile. How would we feel if Jesus looked at us and said that about our lives? Francis Chan, someone I greatly admire, in his book, Crazy Love, calls that kind of lifestyle, that kind of half one foot in and one foot out lifestyle, he calls it being lukewarm. And I just want to read a little bit. Some of you are familiar with the book. Some of you have read the book. It's a great book. But I want to read for you what he writes about lukewarm Christians, lukewarm people. Here's what he writes. Lukewarm people don't really believe that this new life Jesus offers is better than the old sinful one. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Jesus, yet they themselves do not act. They assume such action is for extreme Christians, not for average Christians. Lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expects of all his followers. Lukewarm people say they love Jesus, and indeed, they do. He is part of their lives, but only a part. They give him a section of their time, their money, their thoughts, but is never allowed to control their lives. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more than eternity in heaven. 
Daily life is focused mostly on today's to-do list, this week's schedule, next month's vacation. Rarely, if ever, do we intently consider the life to come. And when they think about the future, it's not about heaven. It's about materialistic gains, real estate investments, and comfortable retirements. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so they don't have to. They don't have to trust for something unexpected happening. They have their savings accounts. The reality is, and please hear this, the reality is, Francis Chan writes, their lives would, wouldn't look much different if they suddenly stopped believing in God. And folks, again, I want you to understand that just like James's words, Francis Chan's words were shaped and influenced and directed by Jesus himself. Because even as I read that, even when I told you about his description, some of your minds went where mine did, and that is Revelation 3, right? You see, in Revelation chapter 3, the very last book of the Bible, Jesus, in fact, calls a group of believers, a group of Christians, lukewarm. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this before we look at the passage. These believers lived in a city called Laodicea. And Laodicea was known for four very distinct things. I mean, the city was known for these things. And I want to talk to you about it. I want to share with you what those four things are because it's absolutely essential we understand what those things were so that we understand what Jesus said, what he did to these people, to this group of followers. So here's the first thing the Laodicean people, the church, the city were known for, and that was to be, for being wealthy. They were affluent. They, they, they had money, if you will, coming out of the ears. In fact, let me give you one historical example of that. Back in A.D. 70, whenever the city was struck by an earthquake, the Roman Empire came in and offered you know, subsidies, offered to help them. They said, we don't need it. We don't need any of your money. We have enough to rebuild the city ourselves. That's how affluent Laodicea was. The second thing the city was known for was the fine clothing. They, they produced some of the finest clothing in the world. So when you think Laodicea, think Paris, think New York when it comes to the fashion industry. The third thing they were known for was their medical school, but more specifically for the fact that their medical school produced this salve that was really desired in the, in the world at that time for its healing properties. In fact, it could cure eye illnesses and eye disease, vision issues. Now, that were the positive things they were known for, but for all the positive, there was one negative they were known for. And what they were known for negatively was the fact that they did not have their own water supply that they did not have water there in the city. What they had to do is they had to pipe it in. It was you know, used in that day, it was by viaducts from hot springs that were literally six miles away from the city. Now, any of us can think through that going, okay, it's summer, six miles, hot springs running to a city. You know what happened. By the time it got there, it was lukewarm. It wasn't hot enough to bathe with or cook with or cool enough to drink. In fact, because it came from hot springs, the other issue with this water was the fact that it literally would make you wretch if you drank it before it was treated. It was awful tasting. Okay, so what was the city known for? What were these people known for? They were known for their wealth. They, they were known for their eye salve. They were known for their fine clothes. And finally, they're known for their lukewarm water. Now, with that in mind, folks, let's listen to what Jesus said to them. He said, I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, but since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The word in Greek literally means vomit. 
You say I am rich. I have everything I want. I don't need a thing. And don't you realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? So I advise you to buy gold for me. Gold that has been purified by fire. Then you will be rich and also buy white garments for me so that you will not be ashamed by your nakedness and ointment for your eyes so that you will be able to see. Now, folks, let that sink in because what Jesus is saying to these men and women, these committed, self-professing followers of Jesus, is that you're neither passionate, world-changing disciples of mine, nor are you card-carrying, committed atheists. You're somewhere in the middle. And the irony of it, Jesus said, I I wish you were one or the other. Now, please don't misunderstand that. Jesus in no way is encouraging those people or us in any way to be cold. All Jesus is saying, the point he's trying to get across is, folks, at least if you were one or the other, if at least you were cold, you would know where you stand. You would know what your commitments are. But as it now stands, folks, you're straddling the fence. And because of that, he says you're self-deceived. You're simply kidding yourself. That's why Jesus says, I I just want to spit you out of my mouth. When I look at your life, I can't even stomach it. It makes me sick. Because you've fallen into the trap of making God and the things of God add-ons to your life. And for that reason, Jesus says, you possess nothing, nothing of real value. Because you don't have the gold that I can give. You don't have the clothes that I could give. You don't have the sight that I could give that would fill you with more joy, more peace, more pleasure than anything else in the world. But as it is, you're naked, you're blind, and you're wretched. And that's why Jesus cries out in in verse 20. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he or she with me. Now I want to stop there for a second, folks, because that verse makes clear. If what you heard previously from Jesus, that somehow Jesus said what he did so that he could beat the Laodiceans up, then you've missed it. That verse makes clear that Jesus said what he did to the Laodiceans, not because he wanted to beat them up, because he wanted to wake them up. You say, wake them up to what? Wake them up to the riches, the benefits, and the blessings of what everyone can experience, you and I can experience if we choose to live all in for God. If we choose to be done with one foot in and one foot out in the Christian life. Jesus is saying to them, I have all these blessings I want to pour out in your life. But you're choosing not to receive them. And again, that's why he cried out, I'm standing at the threshold of your life and asking and begging you to let me in. To let me in by choosing to reject making pleasure your first priority in life, making possessions your first priority in life, making position your first priority in life, and instead replace it with full surrender to my Father. He said, Jesus says, that's the only way. That the inner conflict and the outer fights in your life and mind that are undermining your relationships, that continue to produce conflict, will not only be reined in, but ultimately reversed. Jesus says that's the only way. And I'll give that to you, he says, graciously. I'll pour out grace abundantly upon you. 
Which is why, and it helps us understand why James ends this whole section by saying, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. For anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? You see, what James is trying to communicate is the saying to his readers, is saying to us, he's saying, listen, given our own tendencies to lukewarmness, given our own tendencies to living the Christian life with one foot in and one foot out, who are we? to set ourselves up in the seat of God and, and presume to judge other people. He says, don't do it. Don't do it, he says. Instead, focus on addressing the lukewarmness in your own life and let God single those people out. Let God worry about their lives, what they're doing and not doing. Because he says the relational conflicts and divisions in your life that we all face, and we all do, James says, understand, they come from a single source. And that single source in your life and mine is not letting God be God. By refusing to let God be God. Back on November 22, 1963, a British playwright by the name of David Lodge was in London watching one of his plays performed. And in one of the scenes, the way he wrote it, he was trying, he was kind of an edgy playwright of the time, and so the way he wrote a scene was the actor was to come on stage, he was supposed to be in a job interview, and he was to come on stage carrying a radio, but the radio was to be tuned to an actual station. And so any given night, the, the actors never knew, the cast never knew what exactly, what commercial, what song suddenly will become part of the play. Well, on that given night, the actor did exactly as it was scripted. He came on stage, he turned on the radio, and he began to play out his part. But about 30 seconds into, the, into the, his part, a voice came on the radio and said this, we interrupted this program to inform you that the President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, has been assassinated in Dallas, Texas. And the place just went silent. The, the crowd gasped. And the actor immediately did what all of us would do. He reached over and quickly turned off the radio, but it was too late. Because the reality of the outside world had suddenly shattered the artificial world of the theater. And because of that, from that moment on, everything that happened on that stage seemed superficial and trivial. And folks, the reason I share that with you is because I absolutely believe with all my heart that was James's intention in writing this part of his letter. For his readers and for us. You see, James is saying in this part of the letter, saying the life that God has given you is not a game. He's saying to you and me that lukewarm spirituality not only makes Jesus sick, but it breaks his heart. He's saying in light of eternity, folks, he's saying to you and to me, our lives are but a nanosecond. But how we live that nanosecond is everything. He's saying to us that the price tags have been changed. And so what the world values, position, power, wealth, pleasure, he says, understand, God doesn't value those things. In short, what James is saying, he's saying, I interrupt this life 
to inform you that the great God of the universe is watching how you and I are living out our priorities. And so is saying, open the door of your life to Jesus and say, I'm done living a lukewarm life. I'm done living the Christian life with one foot in and one foot out. I want to live all in for God. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for inspiring and leading James to write these words. Because each and every one of us, either in this room or online, we needed it, Father. And now I want to invite you to pray. Can I invite you to pray in your own way, in your own words? Would you say something like this? Would you say, Jesus, forgive me for any and every area of my life that's been lukewarm? Would you say to him, Jesus, help me to take seriously this one and only life you've given me by not buying into the lie of the switch price tags. Help me to live for you the way you deserve and the way I want to. Would you say to him today, Jesus, I'm opening wide the door of my life to you. As we sang a little bit earlier in the service, just say to him, Jesus, I'm surrendering the throne of my life to you. I don't want co-leadership of my life. I want you to be the leader of my life. Would you say to him, Jesus, I'm done living the Christian life with one foot in and one foot out. I'm done with being a lukewarm Christian. I want the war within me to stop. I want the conflicts around me the conflicts that many times I'm causing to end. So would you say to him now, Jesus, fill me with your spirit. Would you say, Jesus, purify my heart? Replace my priorities and passions with your priorities and passions? I'm going to give you just a second and let you pray that. Whatever it is that God's talking about right now, would you just pray that? Just talk to God about it. Heavenly Father, Whatever it is you're trying to get through to each and every one of us today, I pray that it gets through. And then in faith, in confidence, in the power of your spirit, I pray that we deal with it. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is about the prodigal son. And I couldn't help but think about that as Jerry uh, was talking about being all in today and surrendering ourselves to
to God. And um, the father represents God in that story. And the prodigal son, as he comes home, as he, as he humbles himself and as he surrenders himself to come back home to his father, his father is there waiting and runs down the road to meet his son with his arms open wide. And so um, if you surrendered today, if you prayed that prayer that Jerry uh, just prayed, the father is there waiting with his arms open wide. He's not mad. He doesn't have his arms crossed. He's not scowling today. But he rejoices when we come back to him. And so if you've made that commitment, would you take your green card this morning and write on the back of it the decision that you made? Would you, uh, con- would you let us know? It, it is confidential. You can check a box there that says you only want that shared with the staff or a trusted group of people. But we would love to pray with you, and we would love to be able to uh, help you take whatever next step you need in the journey to learn more about who Jesus is and, uh, and how he um, helps us as we make those small uh, commitments, those small steps toward him. And so would you trust us with that today? Um, just however you want to say it. I'm not going to put the words in your mouth to, to write that, or you can check the box, but we would love to be able to do that, and that's one way that we're able to use that connection card is to be able to do that. You can do that online as well. Um, trust us with that. We would love to be able to walk that out with you guys. Uh, in your bulletin this morning as well, there are many other things, but one thing I really want to point your attention to this morning is uh, about Easter and uh, the things that the opportunities that we have that you can meet some people, build some relationships, and do some really fun things. Uh, there's filling out, I'm uh, not filling out, but actually um, filling eggs is what I was going to say. We're going to set up for Easter morning with uh, the, the kids are going to have some uh, an egg hunt, uh, and I'm not going to read it all here for you. It's there in your bulletin. It's on our website as well. But if you want to help with that, um, real, really, again, very simple. Take out your phone this morning, and you can text the word volunteer to the number 717-872-5679. I'm going to have Jonathan throw that up there on the screen if you would, sir. But again, volunteer. Now, make sure you do volunteer and not with an S, all right, or we won't get it. Um, But you can also mark that on your green card this morning, and also there in the uh, chat window, you can do that as well. Uh, but, but we'd love to have you guys help us with that and uh, come out and, and build some relationships and uh, take some, so another next step in that journey. Um, thank you so much for being here this morning. It's always a joy to be able to worship with you, and uh, I look forward to doing that each week, and I hope to see you guys again next week. Have a great, great day.